0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this
1: week's message.
0: I want to thank you for joining with us as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. The title is, I See You, Luke chapter 5, 27-32. How many times this week, how many times this week have you passed by, by somebody without giving them a second thought or a second glance? People with dreams, aspirations, problems, issues, just like you and I. Maybe it's people you work with, people next to you in the checkout lane, people that you drive by. How many times have you passed by people without a second glance, without a thought of who they are or what their life is like? Or how many times have you made a snap judgment about someone who has an unruly child or is quick on the horn or is sleeping on the bunch, uh, bus bench or not wearing a mask? How many times do we see people without really seeing them? I remember when Lando was just a couple years old. So many times he was in a room full of adults. You know, we didn't have any other children at the time, grandchildren, and so he'd be in there and just kind of running around. And many times, you know, we're kind of ignoring him. And I remember just a few times, well, more than a few times, just taking him and putting, you know, his face within my hands and saying, "I see you." Now that wasn't a warning, a threat, or a judgment. But I wanted him to look in my eyes and me look in him and say, I see you, Lando, and I love you. That was important. I wanted him to know that. and I still want them to know that. I mean, even as we come here in a church, and though our community is small at this moment, how many times do we walk past each other, say hi, and remember Even when we had our times of fellowship, we said hello, but we saw people, but we really didn't see people. We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't contemplate them. We don't think about their dreams and aspirations or maybe the struggles they have. And some of that, of course, is our fault because, again, we wear our mask, right? We want them to see what we see. But how often do we truly see people? There are many people we neglect and ignore, isn't there? We're in such a hurry that we do not notice those around us. Sometimes even those that are close to us. Yet as Christians, we are called to view people differently, to see them differently, to see them. To take time to engage them and to love them. Jesus does that in a wonderful way today in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. But last week, just as a member of a review, we read the... We read the first of the five conflicts that Luke is giving us here in Luke 5 and part way through Luke 6. Jesus' reputation is growing far and wide and and he's attracted the notice of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and their scribes, and, and they want to check this man out. They're hearing much information. Some of them might have came in contact early in his ministry while he was in Judea, but now he's in the northern part of Galilee, the northern part of Palestine, of Israel. So they are now going to those Galilean villages, and many people are coming to hear him speak, and they want to see... What is it that he's teaching? Hear what he's teaching and see the miracles that he's doing. And as we looked at last week, Luke records Jesus proving the legitimacy of his mission to forgive sins by healing the disabled, paralyzed man. This week, as we move to these next verses, 27 through 32 of chapter 5, Luke is now going to narrate the second. He's going to give us the second conflict story between Jesus and the religious leaders when the leaders complain that Jesus is socializing with those that are considered ceremoniously unclean, social outcast, and reprobate sinners. So with that, I think the first part here is going to be on your screen. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles for we'll be taking some time to look at those. And after this, he writes in verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Underline or circle that word Saul. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Father, with that, thank you again for this, for this story, for this narrative that's recorded for all of time, for eternity and understand that even here in this narrative, your word is truth. And, and we will be held one day in account for how we looked at this passage, how we interpret it, how we understand it. And Father, how we apply it in your lives, in our lives. We thank you for Levi. We thank you for this encounter. Give us wisdom, discernment, as we consider this passage and what it means to us and help us to respond in the many different ways that the Holy Spirit calls us to. In your name we pray. Amen. Luke puts this conflict after Jesus' healing of the disabled man. After this, he went out. This time Jesus is walking about town. He's not not in a a synagogue teaching as we've seen before. He's not at someone's house healing or someone's house uh, teaching as he was before. But this time Jesus is walking about the town when he comes upon Levi who was a tax collector. Now you may know this so I'll just give it just as a reminder that tax collectors were hated by Jews. Does anyone like tax collectors? I'm not sure. I'm not sure their mothers even like them. But tax collectors were hated by Jews who were considered to be traitors to Rome. Now, he might have been a tax collector for Rome or for Herod, but in any case, he was not well liked. A tax collector would buy the right to collect taxes, and they were notorious for extorting more money than what was required. Most tax collectors became very wealthy due to their dishonesty and thievery, Theologian Walter Leafield writes that the tax collectors were looked upon by the populace by the by the people uh, as crooked and serving an unpopular government. It was probably a booth that collected taxes along the toll road. Remember they're they're up near Capernaum near Galilee and it was probably along a toll road from Damascus through Capernaum that uh, that would went to the Mediterranean Sea and then down to Egypt, So as goods and people are moving, there would be just like you and I have toll booths with our cars. There would be toll booths set up where they would collect money from merchants and others who are making their way up and down along the country and the coast. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew identifies himself as Levi. Here Luke says it's Levi, but now you and I know that this is Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. So this narrative also serves as an origin story of how Jesus and Matthew met, and how Matthew came to follow Jesus, become one of his disciples, and a credible source to write a gospel about Jesus and his ministry. Now, as Jesus comes upon Levi's booth, he commands Levi to follow him, and it seems like he immediately does this, forsaking his franchise and his job, and the source of security he gets, he gets up and obeys and follows Jesus. Now, most likely, he had heard Jesus before, I, we, would, we could assume. And when he was already under conviction and needed this personal invitation to finally make a choice, we don't know that, but that seems to me most likely. Luke does not go into much detail other than that. He simply, Jesus simply says, come follow me and Levi obeys. Luke then moves the narrative forward as Levi now invites Jesus to his home for a meal with his friends. Now, Levi throws a party with Jesus as the guest of honor. He invites his friends and his co-workers, people that he would associate, tax collectors and those who probably worked in government-type jobs. In this passage, we see Jesus' disciples are enjoying an incredible time of fellowship and in breaking of bread with Levi's companions they don't seem to have a problem with this they don't they're not going to understand the issue now the scribes were not invited to this dinner nor would they have accepted if they were invited hence the source of the conflict and as we read last week they did not go to Jesus they quarrel among themselves and question but now in this time they actually uh, verbalize it but they go to Jesus's disciples not to Jesus himself They could not believe that Jesus was sitting and having dinner with these men. They considered them sinners. They were reprobates. They were outcasts. They, They were people who were outsiders. Now in the formal dining, guests would recline on a couch. And you can kind of think of that last a uh, supper painting that you can think of. They, they would lie on a couch that stretched around on three sides. The host would take the center seat, so look at me, and it would maybe going back around towards you in a U-shape. And, and then the guest of honor would be on the right and left, and then people would fill out with their feet then, uh, actually back this way, back to a wall. It would be a low table. Tax collectors were not even allowed into the synagogue. So they didn't understand, why are, the, why are you uh, eating and socializing with his people too. To eat with them would make one unclean. Remember, that's the law. That's how they would, look, if you touch something that's unclean, you yourself be unclean. And these tax collectors weren't even allowed in temple worship. They would not be accepted with the, with the rest of the community. Religious leaders view this fellowship that implied mutual acceptance. So they saw it more than just having a meal. It's saying, you are mutually accepting each other. This, this is a problem. To the Pharisees, this was not only unlawful, but a serious breach of decorum, decorum. Their question, as you look at verse 30, why do you drink and eat with tax collectors and sinners? It comes across as an accusation. It's not just a a question, but it's an accusation that if it was true that Jesus was doing this, could derail and destroy his ministry. For it would mark him as one that is unclean and not worthy to be a teacher. However, in response, Jesus appeals to logic and reason as well as his authority and purpose to state his reasons of why he's eating and drinking with these men look at with me again at verse 31 as Jesus responds with a self-evident proverb a proverb really that need is so self-evident it doesn't really need an answer for Jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician why would anyone go to a doctor if he was not sick or in need of one but only those who are sick now take a moment to think and consider that statement those who are well have no need of physician but those who are sick it's self-evident there's really no answer to it Jesus is the master of this type of questioning so many times as we read through scripture in his in his conflicts and his arguments and discussions with the religious leaders when they would raise their objections and questions he would answer with just a simple question that would cut to the matter of the heart. The wisdom of Jesus cannot be thwarted or countered. Jesus is simply asking them or retorting to them, replying to them, where else would I be or who else would I be with? These are the very people that I came. I am willing to save. I can forgive sins. So where else would I go? It's like a good hunter or a fisherman. You go where the target is. You go where the fish are, where the game is. He continues in verse thirty-two. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here we see his his uh, his his um, uh, his response of his authority and his purpose in this one sentence. I have come to call the righteous, uh, not the righteous, but I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners' repentance, in this one sentence, Jesus confirms once again his identity as the Messiah. Yahweh has appointed him to gather the the, the father's children. Jesus also clearly states that the proper response of God's children is to repent. This is what I came to do. Where else would I be? I'm going to where the sinners are. Now, as we consider this passage, it becomes clear that we're going to see three views. This is not on the screen on the monitor, so you'll just have to listen. Three ways to view people. Number one, Jesus saw a man in need of a Savior. Jesus saw a man in need of a Savior. Look once again at verse 27. You remember I had you underline a word or circle a word. After this, Jesus went out and he what? Saw a tax collector. Now, I want to draw your attention to that action verb, saw. Now, I know at first glance it didn't seem much of a word. We all walk around all day seeing things, people, animals, bugs, trees, buildings, etc., all sorts of things. But this word saw has much more meaning in Greek than it does here in English. This word saw in Greek conveys more than just a passing catching of an eye or a casual glance. It denotes the act of gazing upon with wonder to discern with eyes. One theologian translated as attentively contemplating. So when you see that, is that as Jesus walked or went out, he, he saw, he, he attentively contemplated. He looked upon Levi with wonder. He saw him with discernment. It was more than just a passing glance or a second. Oh, there's a sinner over there. Levi just didn't catch the eye of Jesus as he walked by. Jesus was walking along that route for a predetermined encounter. Jesus' calling of Levi was ordained before the beginning of time. It was a divine appointment that brought Jesus and Levi together that day. David writes in Psalms 139 verse 2 and 3 about Yahweh's thoughts about mankind. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. And by laying down here and are acquainted with all my ways. As Jesus got up that morning, he knew exactly where he was going to walk and when he was going to walk and who he was going to encounter on that day. He had contemplated Levi since the beginning of time. We are well known to God. Can you get that, brother and sister in Christ? You and I are well known to God. We are created by and for his glory and good pleasure. Levi's position as a tax collector working at the booth on that day was no accident or coincidence. This was all part of God's plan for Levi, as well as for all of those who would read scripture. The fact that Jesus called him to follow him was not serendipity or a chance encounter. No, Jesus knew exactly where Levi was on that day and he purposely set out to find him. Levi was one of God's chosen children and Jesus was sent to gather Levi into the Father's fold. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, the apostle Paul writes that the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You and I were known before all things. When it says in the Bible, in the beginning God created, we were already in his heart and mind. Now that's an amazing thought. Because I don't know how you view yourself and what you, how you would identify yourself with. But view yourself as God views you, as one of his children valued Jesus sees us, he contemplates you, and he knows you. If you look up on the monitor, the psalmist captures this wonderful, unimaginable thought in Psalms 8. When he sings, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What a great way to remind ourselves who God is. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have set in place, look what he says in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor you and I view the images of the Hubble telescope and we see the beauties and the glories of the galaxies that are so ancient that we think, that look so ancient, we wonder how could we ever measure up? But God says you do. Because it's in my view that I see that you are my created child. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 10 if you would. You see, Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. And it's a repentance that leads to life. On that day, Levi was on his list to call. He was on Jesus' to-do list. Wakes up, go find Levi, call him. Just as I pray that each and every one who hears my voice today will be... When Levi heard Jesus say, follow me, it was an example of Jesus' power that was given to him by the Father's promise found in John chapter 10. Are you there? Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Levi heard the voice of the shepherd and followed him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has, given to the, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus' view of Levi was much different from the Pharisees. What they despised and rejected, Jesus loved and accepted. Are you struggling with that this morning? Let me assure you from John chapter 10 that you are loved and accepted and affirmed by the ultimate power of the universe. The creator of all things. The one who will judge the living and the dead. For he looks at you and says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He actually takes like the, like the, the father with the prodigal son and embraces us during our difficult times. Jesus himself says our names on his lips when he prays for us personally. Levi was considered an outcast, an outsider from the community, yet Jesus, to Jesus... He was part of the family of God. D.A. Carson observes that Jesus' central ministry, the central thing that he came to do was the forgiveness of sin. And that forgiveness of sin meant that he came to call the despised and the disgusting elements of society. In other words, Jesus came for those that the world has rejected. John Calvin says this as you look on the monitor that Christ came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemn, to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immorality those who were debased by disgusting vices. Your only response to that is the same as Martin Luther, but in a different context. In this, I stand. See, Jesus sees us much differently. Number two, Levi saw a man worth introducing to his friends. When, Jesus looked at, or when Levi looked at Jesus, he says, I want my friends to know this man. Whatever it was that drew Levi to Jesus, whether it was his teachings, miracles, or his gracious spirit, it was important for him to introduce those he cared about to Jesus. Not only did he forsake all to follow Jesus, but he wanted his friends to follow suit. Now what is interesting and informative for us is that he used his wealth and resources to throw a great feast for his friends. When Luke writes a great feast, he is describing more than just a meal. It's more than just a meeting at Starbucks. It's more than just a meeting at the, daily, uh, the downtown uh, you know, deli. But it's a social event that signifies a shared life. So the Pharisees were right. In those days, meals were much more than just a gathering together. It was a breaking of bread. It was a shared fellowship. It was more than just a meal. And just on a side pastoral note, we've been saying this for the last two years. But let me say it once again. When it comes to Levi, his evangelistical tool was hospitality. We must never underestimate the importance of hospitality in evangelism. Now, I know that that's difficult Today. That's been topsy-turvy. It's very difficult. We're actually, by the state of California, recommended not to. More than recommended, we are are advised not to have anyone outside of our household or that we live with over to our house. I have to tell you that there's a greater command. Look here in in the scripture, here in the monitors. Romans tells us, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In Hebrews, the let brotherly love continue. do you not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then in 1 Peter, show hospitality to one another without, what? Grumbling. That does include your mother-in-law and other in-law family members. I think that's the only reason that's in there. But hospitality is a great evangelistic tool. You'll see that time and time again. It's more because bringing someone to your home and sharing a meal with them should be more than just, hey, let's catch up. But it's about sharing life. It's about seeing someone and engaging with them. Again, we are not told exactly what Levi knew of Jesus before this encounter or what drew him other than the work of the Holy Spirit. But it was not enough for Levi to decide personally to follow Jesus. He wanted his family and his friends to meet Jesus and follow him too. Now we can assume that it was not because of Jesus' dashing looks (coughs) or his sparkling personality. The prophet Isaiah wrote that Messiah would have no form of majesty that we should look at him. He has no beauty that we should, not, that we should desire him. He's not going to be someone that says, oh, look out of, uh, what, what is it, uh, what's that casting, blank casting? Um, in like movies, an open casting call or something. Like, there's another term for it. It's not like you would say, oh, there he is, central casting. That's not, you know, that's not a Rock Hudson there. That's not a Gary Cooper or, or whatever you might put in there. It's not his personality, or it's not, it wasn't his person so much, in his looks and things of that nature, things that you and I hold dear and hold as high values. But it was at the same time this that this effect that Jesus had on those who follow him. There was something about Jesus that would cause others to say, "Look, I want to invite you to see him, to meet him." In John chapter 1, verse 40, we read that one of those who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. That was Simon Peter's brother. But he first, it says, found his own brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. Now, it's, it's interesting that Andrew would go down to be just one of the 12, whereas Peter would become the first among equals, the first of all the disciples but it was Andrew who brought him to Jesus. I want you, I need you to meet someone. In verse 45 of John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael, another two of the future disciples of Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We know that phrase. There's a chuckle there. But Philip said to him, and listen to this, four words. Come and, oh, three words. Come and see. Come and see. That's what Levi is doing here. Come and see. Come and see should be the invitation that all of us should give to those that we love. Just like the woman in the well, who, who would uh, we, we need to declare the wonders of Jesus to those in our circle of influence. Remember the woman at the well, she too went to the village and said, come and see the one who told me everything about my life. We were singing that song, beautiful one. We need to shout that. Come and see the one who is beautiful. Come and see the one who is created. Come to the one and see the one who saw me, who knows me and still loves me. So Levi saw someone worth introducing to his friends. Number three, the scribes, the religious leaders, they saw nothing but despicable tax collectors and sinners that were not even worth eating with. Scribes saw nothing but despicable tax collectors and sinners not even worth eating with. We know who the Pharisees are. They were a relatively small but highly influential group of Jews who meticulously studied and kept the law. Not only the Old Testament laws, but all the extra-biblical traditions that they had accumulated over the centuries. And they believed by observing these laws that they would attain righteousness, a good standing with God, and retain God's favor. They were guilty of self-righteousness, and that self-righteousness fueled their pride, and it gave them a sense of superiority over others, especially those that disagreed with them. And we know from Scripture they became the major opponents of Christ's ministry. They had a judgmental spirit and self-righteous attitudes. And remember, it's not that the scribes were righteous, but they just considered themselves to be probably like you and I were before we met Christ in the majority of the world. They were prime examples of the danger and the power of delusions of self-righteousness. And here are the power of of the self-delusion. It compels one to deny one's need of a savior. It denies the teaching and ministry of Christ. It denies that all people are in the image of God. I think what you're seeing today with with many of the organizations that are out there, and critical race theory and so on and so forth, is a self-righteousness that denies all three of those things. We need to be careful. We need to understand what the gospel has for us. They trusted in their ability to follow the law as they interpret it to be, to make them right with God. But as we see, the law shows us that the, it has no power to make one righteous. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The, the religious leaders would never have accepted this condemnation, though it was in their own law, in the Old Testament. Their protest was a call for Jesus to set proper boundaries. Jesus needs to know where his place is. He needs to stay in his lane. These were boundaries that only they were worthy of setting. This is who you can eat with. This is who you can dine with. Yet they were in error and in danger of judgment due to their self-righteous attitudes, as is all who have those types of attitudes. Now, Jesus did not condone their sin or participate in the destructive uh, practices and behaviors of those he ate and drank with. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, it's, it's on the monitor here, writes this. "This is Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he winked at sin, ignored sin or enjoyed light-hearted revelry with those who engaged in immorality. No, Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. So like a physician who finds himself going to those who are sick, Jesus is a savior who has the ability, who is willing to forgive sins. He must go to those who are ready to have their sins forgiven, not to those who are self-righteous and do not believe they even have a need of a savior. In being a friend of sinners, Jesus shows that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance The important truth that you and I must discover is our need for a Savior, not just for us, but for everyone, for our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, even those that you and I may feel are untouchable or unlovable, that have leprosy of the soul, the down and out, the rich, the poor, the haves and the have-nots, they all are in need of a Savior. So how do you view people? Do you see them as having worth made in the image of God, in need of a savior, or has your own sense of self-righteousness and self-worth blinded you to these realities? How would you have viewed Levi and his friends? Now, so far in Luke's gospel, Jesus has shown grace and favor To Peter's mother-in-law, a demon-possessed man, a leopard, a disabled man, and now today a tax collector. Yet Jesus is more than just an amazing teacher and miracle-working healer. His mission includes more than just transmitting information and curing people. His purpose, as uh, as we see in this passage, is to call sinners to repentance. So here's a big idea. You probably won't be able to write all this down. But if you want to just grab it, the call to follow Jesus is more than just a casual call to like Jesus. It's not like he's just calling you to go to his Facebook page or his Twitter and like it or to share it. No, the call to follow Jesus, get this, requires abandoning everything... Following Jesus requires abandoning everything in exchange for a new purpose and a new mission. And as we read this passage, it becomes clear that there are two actions by Levi when Jesus says, come follow me. One is negative, one is positive. The negative response is that he leaves everything. Not not negative in that it was the wrong one, but he has to give up something. He leaves everything, it says. It makes that clear. And he left everything. And the positive is that he follows Jesus. So he changes it all. It requires this. It is not a suggestion. It is not something for you to consider. But it's a command. You must abandon all things. Let's do it this way. And follow Jesus. So either or. Whichever way you want to do it. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Both of these actions and decisions seem to be both immediate and permanent as Levi forsakes his task booth and follows Jesus. The New American Commentary on Luke on this passage says, Follow me is not entering some sort of second-level discipleship. And sometimes that's what we think of. It's just some second-level discipleship. It's not about going all the way here. But rather, it's a commitment to become a Christian. And we need to understand that to follow Jesus means one must submit their need for salvation and it's followed by repentance. Walter Lethfeld, in his commentary, writes that while the gospel of grace and forgiveness is for everyone, repentance, now get this, repentance is a prerequisite to its reception. In other words, you and I can never receive or ask for forgiveness of sin until repentance So it's a prerequisite. Turn to Mark chapter 8 real quickly if you would. Verse 34. In this passage, Jesus is confronting Peter and the other disciples that he must soon suffer and die. They are struggling to understand and accept this message in Mark chapter 8. Yet Jesus teaches them that salvation comes at a very high cost. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? There's another one of those self-evident questions and statements. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, one might ask, well, is there a contradiction here in Luke's narrative, his account of Levi? It seems that Levi left everything, but then he, grew, then he threw a great feast at his house. Was he not like Zacchaeus and gave everything up? Did he not give it all away? Doesn't true repentance mean giving away all my money, my possession, and even my friends? The answer to that question is simply no. No. His repentance did not mean that he gave up all that he owned. Rather, it means that Levi, oh, I'm sorry, I missed a page here. This is important, seven and eight, and oh, there I do. But what it does tell us is, Joe Green writes, that what Levi did, what repentance means is that you and I reorient our lives completely around God's purpose as is made known or made manifest in Jesus' mission. So in other words, Levi doesn't mean that you're going to give everything away. Abandonment doesn't mean abandon all things, worldly goods. But it means that you repurpose all that you have and reorient it for God's purposes rather than just your own. Now to understand what is happening in Levi's life at this moment, to understand what leads him to repurpose his life, we need to take a quick look at what repentance is. He says he calls sinners to repentance. A clear definition comes from Wayne Gruman. You've seen this before in his systematic theology. It's here on the board. And would you just keep that up just for a second, in case you want to take notes here. Repentance is a heartfelt, sorrowful sin. It's a denouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So repentance is a heartfelt, sorrowful sin. It's a denouncing of that sin. It's a sincere commitment to forsake it, to turn away, and then to walk in obedience to Christ. And you'll see the three elements there of biblical repentance. One that's intellectual. It's where you and I become aware of our personal sin and our guilt before a holy God. It's where we understand, yet not I, but Christ. It's when we recognize that He is that firm foundation. It's a, our need for a Savior, our understanding of who God is. So there is an intellectual component. But then also there's this uh, emotional component to repentance. And that's where there's a sorrow for sin. We a, uh, it's where we experience godly sorrow, remorse, and mourning for having offended a holy God against you. And only you have I sinned, as David would write. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I encourage you, you need to balance. Am I experiencing godly grief? Am I just sorry for the consequences of my sin or my actions? Or is there truly a godly grief where I see that I have Harm, not harmed, God. What's a good word? I have disobeyed God. And I have in my fist at his holy law and at his holiness. Not only is there an intellectual and an emotional element, but there's that volitional element, that voluntary, that determination and sincere commitment to forsake it and submit to Christ. That's what Levi needed to do. That was what Jesus was calling Levi to do. Not just leave his job and for another career, but to forsake it all and to follow him. He was calling you and I today. Levi met this requirement of repentance while the Pharisees did not. Levi showed kindness, or Jesus showed kindness to Levi and his friends. He would save his harshest words in judgment on those who considered themselves righteous, those who would not need a God. In Romans 2.4, Paul wrote, Did you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All the good graces and things that God has given you over the years is meant to lead you to Him. For us to see that all that we have is because of His wonderful love and kindness to you. So the question this morning is, Have you repented? Are you exhibiting a life of continual repentance? Not a one-time event. It is a life of repenting, of of seeing that our life needs to be marked by growing dependence in Him. Is your life showing repentance? And again, let me say this, this this is very important. Repentance is not something that Levi and his friends can conjure up themselves. Like faith, when we say, we just need more faith, I need to have more faith. You do not have faith. Faith, repentance, is something that God gives to us as a gift. So our prayer must be, Lord, give me true repentance. Father, strengthen my faith. Help me to to see you and be aware of my personal sin. Father, let my emotions desire you and see the impact my sin has on you and others. Then Lord, the Spirit, Give me that determination, self-discipline, and control to walk in such a way that shows that I have repented. So let me close with three things that you and I can learn from this, and then we're done. Number one, we as Christians must learn to have profound gratitude for the salvation that's been offered. You need to be thankful, have gratitude for God's wonderful grace. As we come to know our depravity and sin, that it should bring us a deeper understanding of God's grace. Paul writes that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That tri- Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You may say, someone may say, well, who is the worst sinner in the world? Well, Hitler, Stalin. We'll, we'll name some name. If you want to know who the worst sinner is in the world, just look in the mirror. And make sure it's only you in the room. You are the worst sinner that you know. We want to be self-righteous and judge others and say, well, they are much worse than I am. Well, when you do that, you have now pronounced yourself as a Pharisee. One pastor writes that we should never forget the debt of mercy that we owe to God, to Christ Number two is Christians. We must learn from Christ's example. We should not develop a self-righteous attitude, but have compassion, even for the worst of sinners, even for those that we might consider the worst, especially that the world, those that the world considers as outcasts and outsiders. For those are the people that Jesus came to save. We should have the same attitude in Luke as Luke records of Jesus. I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Do you rejoice in the salvation of those that are unlike you, or do you question it? Do you, are you a skeptic? And I'm a skeptic. I'm one of those ones, when I hear these, these claims of celebrities and others coming to know the Lord, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go again. But do you rejoice And let me ask you this. Do you expend your finances and your energy and your social capital in reaching others? Come and see who Jesus is. Yeah, invite people over for dinner, your neighbors, your coworkers. Bring the board game out. But is there any point in which you would gladly and bravely and confidently say that Jesus saves? Or let me introduce you to one who has who who reoriented my purpose and mission. And number three, there's immense hope in this passage for the person who would like to follow Christ but does not feel good enough. For there are some whose heart and mind is so weak and so faint and so struggling that they do not believe that God would even care for them. They believe that Jesus just looks at them and keeps on looking. Or if even if he's looking in their direction, he must be looking at the person behind them. But Jesus sees you. If you're here this morning and you doubt that, let me encourage you that Jesus sees you. And his call is to come, follow me. He's calling you to repentance. To forsake all and follow him. The truth is, is that if you feel good enough for Jesus, he doesn't want you. You're not who he came to save. He's not who you call, he, he's, you're not one he, call, he came to call. Only those that recognize that they're sinners. He came for the sick, the sinners. He forgives and transforms them. Joseph Hart in his wonderful hymn writes, Come you sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. He is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. With every head bowed and every eye closed. How do you view people? If Jesus has seen you, do you see people as Jesus sees them? Are you ready and willing to say come and see to your family and friends your circle of influence that you may introduce them to the one who came to seek and save the sinners? Call them to repentance. Have you repented of your sin? Are you living a life of repentance? If not, would you come to him this morning so that you may experience the most wonderful mercy and grace that God is so willing to give to his children? I'm going to ask Randy to go ahead and come on up this morning for our pastor's prayer. And after this, we'll go to communion.
1: Please pray silently with me as I pray aloud. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are wholly dependent on you. How much of life can we claim to have made? None, not one bit. For from the beginning, you formed us in our mothers' wombs. You knit us together and breathed life into our lungs. You implanted in us desires and emotions unique to each individual. And as we grew, your hands never let go of us. Your grip never loosened. Your unwavering hold on our lives continued on even as we strayed from your ever-loving embrace. We bound ourselves in the chains of sin, and you set us free. And in your grip of grace, you rescued us from this life of despair in a way that we could never conceive. And you paid the wages of sin with your own perfect currency. That is, you placed our sin upon your unstained shoulders, dying for them instead of killing us. You defeated the stench of sin and death by coming back to life. And you promised to give us this victory over sin and death for eternity, simply by accepting it as a gift. All of our praise be to you for your precious timeless promise. So let us come this morning into your presence, to your table as it were, and revel in the knowledge that you are the same now as you have always been. The same promise you gave us in the book of Genesis to redeem humanity is the same promise you extend to every hour of every day now. That you have done all that is necessary for us to spend eternity in your loving presence. For those who have repented and put their trust in you, this truth is overwhelming. For without your plan of redemption, we are utterly lost forever. But you, Father, you make us whole and loved in your sight. Let us always remember that when we stand before you, our sin is not what you will see, but the magnificent perfection of Jesus Christ in its place. How blessed are we to be able to lay claim to be one of yours. I pray that we bless you this morning with this remembrance and with it every moment of the rest of our lives. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray.